0: What is Debunked?
1: We're looking at demystifying these myths that are out there that can promote stereotypes and can continue to cause harm in various communities. So to me, the season's really about storytelling and how we weave in evidence-based practices and really highlight the importance of resilience.
2: Welcome to the recap episode of season two for Debunked, the only Utah podcast combining evidence-based health practices with storytelling to challenge the stereotypes and debunk the myths about harm reduction, substance use disorder, and homelessness. I am Jameen Fitzgerald, the producer of Debunked, and this season, we continued our mission to educate, help reduce stigma, and enlighten those individuals who still believe those myths. Episode one debunked the myth that all Native Americans live on reservations. On this episode, we heard the insight of Sandra Solzer, the former director of the Office of Health Equity and Community Engagement at Utah State University, and Christina Groves, a licensed clinical social worker with the Urban Indian Center, who is also a member of the Ute and Hopi tribes. Please stay tuned as we share some of the highlights from the season.
0: Sandy Solzer, some themes uh, this season understand homelessness and how that relates to harm reduction, so maybe definitions, first homelessness and then harm reduction.
3: So there are a
4: number of different definitions of homelessness. One definition is that you don't know where you'll be sleeping tonight. But there are other definitions. And I think part of what we want to unpack here today is the definition we choose can exclude people. So if you're staying on someone's couch and you know that you're sleeping there tonight, maybe you get excluded from that count. Another way that we measure homelessness is by doing point and time counts where there's one night a year where volunteers and government workers go out and count the number of people who are in tents or sleeping on the street and so on, and then they can add that up with the number in the shelter and get an estimate of how many people are experiencing homelessness. But there are all kinds of reasons why we might not identify or see a given person on a given day, especially when we just pick one day to do it like that. And so a big part of this season is hearing people's stories of what homelessness was like for them. And then what is harm reduction? At its core, harm reduction is about meeting people where they're at. Getting one step closer to wellness is still a step closer. There's sort of a more old fashioned approach to addiction where people thought someone has to not be using at all in order to deserve medical care or access to housing or treatment. And what we're finding is that harm reduction approaches that take someone who is either unable or unwilling to stop use to move them toward wellness and health without having it be an all-or-nothing equation.
0: Christina Groves, the myth we're debunking, all Native Americans live on reservations. Where do you think this came from?
5: I think there's a tendency to think about Native Americans as historical and not necessarily contemporarily. I think that's changing over time. I've done presentations, and it's become more common that people in the city have grown up knowing someone who's Native American, knowing there's populations of Native Americans here in the city. I grew up here in Utah, and I think our education systems definitely don't address contemporary Native Americans and what that actually looks like. Census data kind of shows that although we are a small portion of the total population, that there are populations that live on the reservation and there are large populations that live in the city. And in our agency, one of the other things that I think is also a myth is that there are only certain tribes that live in an area. Our agency has over 99 different tribal backgrounds represented in the
2: clients that we help. According to the Utah Department of Health, there are five tribal cultures, eight sovereign tribal governments, and roughly 60,000 Native Americans and Alaska Natives in the state of Utah.
0: And it also goes to stereotyping. There are a lot of stereotypes of a lot of different groups and certainly Native Americans. Don Lyons, I want to get your take on this.
1: I went to public school in Detroit, and the only pictures you would see would you know, be the Indian in the breechcloth living in a teepee. But I'm an Anishinaabe and come from the Great Lakes, and we live in wigwams, and we didn't dress like that. So that was the stereotype that was perpetuated, and I think the idea that we as indigenous people are static and and the idea of these team logos also play a role into it, that you have to look a certain way. I work with tribes all over and non-Native organizations, and it's pretty mind-blowing questions that I get sometimes, Tom, and one of them was, do Indians still live in teepees? And sometimes people don't know what they don't know, and sometimes we have to educate ourselves. So I think this myth plays a big role and understanding that Native folks were very diverse. Over 90 tribes represent those tribal nations, uh, sovereign entities in the United States. I grew up in Detroit and there was at least 60 different tribal nations and those have different cultural practices, different languages. There's some similarities, of course, but the diversity in Indian country is another thing that I think it's really important to share with the listeners.
0: Christina Groves, what do you think about this myth, all Native Americans live on reservations? How how can that contribute to, or I guess make worse, housing insecurity?
5: A lot of our people leave the reservation to take care of their families, to be able to provide for their families, and coming to the city may be foreign for them. And so the ways that they negotiate that and make it feel safe is by replicating the community and the relationships that they have on the reservation. And so oftentimes people are staying, you know, doubling up with friends and family. Um, It's also not uncommon for Native American families to be relatively large and multi-generational, and traditional shelters do not accommodate that. And so that could also contribute to the reason why people don't go to shelters or seek access in a formalized way and are not able to move forward to be able to have stable housing. one of the other things, too, is that Indigenous relationships are not always formalized by marriage, although they could be longstanding, stable relationships. And accessing shelter services here in the city, if you're not married uh, or have children, you can't stay together. And that definitely contributes to people not accessing services as well, which leads to them staying in maybe unsafe places.
1: I think it's important to understand that Indigenous people, we're all over. This land has always been Indigenous. And everywhere you go, it's it's always been Indigenous people living on those lands. There's a big movement for land recognition. I really appreciate when people speak from the heart and not just the written statements of recognizing. So that I think it calls to be inclusive that we recognize people who lived there uh, before us.
2: I was
5: listening to a webinar, and one of the comments that kind of struck me was that moving Native Americans off our reservations was the first form of homelessness. And that really, really struck me. I think it's important that people have shelter and safety and stability. That doesn't always address some of the issues that they've had, oftentimes for a long time. And it doesn't necessarily tap into the trauma and the healing that needs to happen in order to be able to live a healthy life.
2: The myth that all Native Americans live on reservations can contribute to the idea that Native American housing issues only occur in reservation communities and thus are not issues that people in other cities and towns in Utah need to worry about. Our guests showed us that not only do Native Americans live in many places outside of reservations, such as Salt Lake City and small communities like Roosevelt, but also that Native American people can face barriers to housing due to historical injustices and due present day to cultural mismatches between shelter rules and the multi-generational structure of many indigenous families. Wishfully, this episode encouraged those who do believe that myth to explore and learn more about the Native American cultures. In episode two, the myth that was debunked was indigenous and non-indigenous groups don't want to work together to solve problems. Our guests, Josh Schuyler and Maria Treviso, broke down what members of society can do to dispel this myth. Take a listen.
6: We're exploring the myth that Indigenous and non-Indigenous folks don't want to work together to solve problems. So let's start the first place. And Josh, where do you think this myth comes from? Maybe it's just around misinformation on both sides from non-Indigenous groups and also I guess the Indigenous community itself and my family, community, a lot of tribal folks you know, come from a, a diverse background that includes tribal and others. So. I think that historically too, coming from tribal communities and knowing families around here, it's just something that there needs to be education and be able to raise that community readiness. This isn't an issue. We need to work together and rely on each other to do this work and support. Maria, I ask you the the same question.
7: I like to look at what happened. So we have history, first contact, what happened after first contact, maybe not so good things, some good things. So if the contact is not so pleasant there might be a, an issue of trust so you have that and then part of it is not being seen there's probably some people on this call today that go i didn't know there were still indians here and then then there's really what kind of indian are you can you say something in indian for us and then you get to be that sacred indian and we see it in film and myth and stories and everything else that you can be that magical indian or that magical black person so again his trauma We have to unpack some of that to be seen and to be invited into the conversation and to have those conversations as we do in our work before we go forward. Because if we don't tell that story, then it's kind of like a secret in the background and it can impede our relationship because a good relationship, in my opinion, is based on trust, transparency, honesty, and willingness to even say the icky and difficult things.
6: The idea that this myth, it's kind of built and structural and systematic processes that have been layered on over the generations. It's not just something that came up in the eighties or the nineties. This is something that has been built on since first contact. We're talking 1400s. So there's a long history and layers there. Maria, thinking about this myth, indigenous and non-indigenous folks, not wanting to work together to solve social justice issues. How does that impact the work that you do?
7: Dr. Patina Love talks about co-conspirators, that we don't just need allies, we need co-conspirators. And that's somebody who's willing to take a hit for you, to cash in on their whiteness, to cash in on their privilege. And we have several examples of that at Standing Rock a while back. A young lady, Sophia Walensky, I think it was, she had the night shift watching the bridge that the protesters had taken. And they shot her and they blew up her arm. She was a co-conspirator. At a certain point, you make a commitment that I'm going to not just show up at the meeting with all the buzzwords and to offer my sympathy, but when the work has to happen, I'm going to leave. We need people that are invested for the long haul.
6: Part of the healing process is which I want to get to be strong enough to truth tell and be strong enough to listen and hear. I heard someone say that guilt is not a useful feeling. It's about empathy because guilt makes it turn to you as a selfish way of thinking about, I'm guilty about this. And promoting empathy is about motivating you to have action to do something.
2: Misinformation can create divides between communities that could otherwise work together. Josh mentions this problem in our episode, and Maria offers a suggestion for how non-Native communities can help by becoming a co-conspirator with Native American communities. Being a co-conspirator means listening to Native American people about their ideas for solving social issues and collaborating with Native communities to carry out their plans. In Episode 3, the myth that was debunked was homeless people are lazy and don't want to work. Our guests were Heidi Fuger, a certified peer support specialist for USARA, which stands for Utah Support Advocates for Recovery Awareness, and Peggy Green. Executive Director of Iron County's Karen Share in Cedar City, Utah. Heidi shares intimately about her experiences as an unsheltered person who was also combating substance use disorder. Although she had multiple jobs simultaneously, it did not prevent her from facing stigma and shame while she endured many challenges trying to secure housing. Let's get into the episode.
1: What would you say to people who believe that myth, that homeless people are lazy and don't want to work. I want to shift to Heidi on the same question. What would you say to people who believe that myth that almost people are lazy and don't want to work?
8: When I was unsheltered, that was the most draining and living that life was so exhausting for me. There was a point in time when I was working 72 hours a week and I was unsheltered and Whenever I would get off work, I didn't know necessarily where I would be eating that night or where I would be sleeping, how the weather conditions would be, and just that stress was so mentally draining on me and mindlessly wandering the streets, not having an agenda and exhausting all of my efforts on just basic survival that it was so exhausting because It is the exact opposite of lazy for me. Now that I have somewhere to stay, I can come home and just relax. And relaxing is not something that I ever did when I was unsheltered.
0: Tell us about the obstacles to find housing.
8: I did have a job while I was searching for housing, and I wasn't able to budget it. I would always be spending my money on substances, and then at the end of the month, I didn't have enough to to cover rent. Um, And then also... While I was putting in applications for housing, the fact that I did have criminal charges on my record because of substance use, that did prevent me from gaining housing.
0: So when you couldn't find housing, what did you do?
8: One instance, I did stay at the shelter downtown. Other times I was staying with family members or friends, and I also lived in a tent for quite a while. I did go to the housing authority, and I was on the waiting list for these properties for about nine months. And then once I did come up, I was denied for those low-income properties because of my credit, something I've been working on since then. I did appeal that application, and that was eventually overturned. But I had to prove myself
9: worthy, I guess, of having housing.
0: Peggy, address what Heidi just said.
9: We need to have strategies and support and systems that serve the individuals that they're meant for properly. And that means not adding additional obstacles. We all have hiccups in life and they don't need to be permanent blemishes. And if we are truly trying to help out and provide housing, provide support, we need to have things in place that support landlords, that honor what they're trying to do and give them support so that when Heidi or other individuals in similar situations are looking to break a cycle, to make changes, to get a roof over their heads so that all of the other things can be tackled in their lives, that they can not be on the streets and be vulnerable. We need to have those things in place. I'm not quite sure where we got off track, but the encouraging thing is that we're seeing examples of landlords that are going a different direction and that are saying, you're working with a case manager, you've got some rental support, I'm going to work with you, I'm going to give you that opportunity, and we're going to walk this road together. And so for me, that's encouraging. But we really have to have systems that do right by people.
2: On a single January night earlier this year, there were an estimated 3,565 people experiencing homelessness across Utah. About a third of them sleeping in their cars, or camping outside.
0: Heidi, can you describe a time where you experienced stigma when you were seeking housing?
8: Going into different housing places, and nothing really, I guess, directly was said, but just the image that I felt like when walking in and not having showered or being presentable. I feel like my application was just kind of brushed aside
0: before in the past,
8: and just climbing out of that was very, very difficult for me.
0: Peggy, can you speak to how stigma has impacted the homeless population?
9: Often you hear people say, and as we're discussing, homeless people are lazy. Why don't people just get a job? Well, we hear examples all the time of how it's not easy to get a job when you're living in homelessness or in crisis or with mental health or other trauma. We've got to take away the stigma and meet people where they are and help them move forward from that point.
1: Peggy, you've done a great job of tapping into the structural issues that are sometimes invisible if we're not really naming those. And Heidi, I'm really thankful that you're willing to share your personal journey. What was it that really helped you get you on your feet?
8: For me, I think you, Sarah. I had a peer recovery coach at the time who never gave up on me. She met me where I was at and sat with me in the hard times and helped me to figure out a path in order to get back on my feet. And I just feel super, super grateful to be a part of an organization that helped me change my life so much. I really think that having just one person to connect to in that moment when I felt so alone played a huge role in me believing in myself and knowing that I can get through anything.
2: Peggy and Heidi did a great job of debunking the myth that homeless people are lazy and don't want to work, as well as illustrating the dangers of stigmatizing people. Heidi was able to reign victoriously and is now helping people who were once like herself find their paths to recovery at the very place she experienced radical acceptance. As you heard from Peggy and Heidi, harm reduction and meeting people where they are can be a huge step toward helping someone struggling with substance use disorder find their way. In episode four, the myth that was debunked was There are plenty of resources, but people just don't want the help. We heard from Heidi's peer support recovery specialist, Lynette Denton, who too works for USARA, and shares her personal story about substance use disorder and the lack of resources available. We also heard from Heather Hogue, Continuum of Care Project Coordinator with United Way of Utah County. Let's hear what they had to say about that myth.
1: We're looking at debunking the myth that there are plenty of resources, but people just don't want help. Would you like to introduce yourself, Lynette?
10: My name is Lynette Denton. I am a certified peer support specialist in Moab, Utah, and I work as a recovery coach for USARA, which is Utah support advocates for recovery awareness.
1: How did substance use disorders affect your life?
10: Coming from such a small town where everyone knows everybody, jobs were hard to get. And because of substance use, if I did get a job, they were hard to keep.
1: Lynette, when you were getting treatment, what resources were available?
10: I went to drug court. The drug court helped supply me with my tools and support and the structure that I needed.
1: Heather, you work at United Way, and I want to dive into the questions about resources because we're debunking the myth. There's plenty of resources people just don't want to help. So I have some experience working in rural areas of Utah where there might be high rates of substance use disorder there. And could you talk about the resources or maybe the lack of that are in those rural areas in Utah?
11: Particularly in rural areas of Utah, there really are a lack of resources. So when you look at these rural communities that maybe don't have the population, the budget, the infrastructure that some of the more urban areas do, in general, we're really not prioritizing those resources in our communities. And I think that's a really multifaceted issue. In my experience, a lot of people struggle to identify themselves as having substance use disorder. So I think it goes greatly unreported. And then I think people also fear seeking help because of stigma or uncertainty. So therefore we have communities that don't really see what a serious problem it is, like right in our backyard. And I think in many ways we as a society are still Kind of coming to terms with substance use disorders being an illness rather than like a moral failing.
0: So, Don, before we go to break, I just want to ask you: What are some available resources for those seeking treatment in the tribal communities?
1: It's pretty similar to what Heather was sharing: is the lack of infrastructure. And I think Heather's point and Lynette talked about it too, from a firsthand experiences, is those micro systems and and those micro infrastructure on a personal level to get to point A to point B. That's a real thing. In tribal communities, we have the mental health services, the Indian health services, but historically the Indian health services is super underfunded. It's only funded at 50% of where it, it needs to be funded to service its communities. But there are still mental health facilities there. Lack of treatment beds is a real thing in a lot of tribal communities when the need is there. But tribes also have access to traditional medicine and traditional forms of recovery and healing some of those could be sweat lodges, language tables, various ceremonies, and there's over close to 600 fairly recognized tribes, so each tribe is unique in its own way. A lot of tribal communities and also urban communities have access to traditional healers and traditional helping services. There's some resources, but there's opportunity for definitely improvement and growth there.
2: There is often an assumption that Native American populations have higher rates of substance use disorders than other racial or ethnic groups in the U.S. However, substance use is complex and only some measures of substance use are higher among Native American populations than among non-Hispanic white populations. For example, according to the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration's 2019 National Survey on Drug Use and Health, 29% of Native Americans reported never drinking alcohol during their lifetime which was the highest rate among all U.S. racial and ethnic groups, even higher than among non-Hispanic white populations. Only 14 percent report abstaining. This survey also shows rates of substance use disorder of any kind, which may include alcohol or illicit drugs, are similar among Native American and white populations, with about 13% of respondents in both groups reporting they have ever had an alcohol or drug use problem in their lives. CDC data shows that in Utah between 2015 and 2019, Native Americans also had lower rates of opioid overdose deaths than non-Hispanic whites. Although when looking at fatal drug overdoses for all drugs, which includes substances like alcohol and methamphetamines along with opioids, Native Americans have a slightly higher death rate than non-Hispanic white populations. Access to treatment resources, such as medications for opioid use disorder, can be significantly harder to get for Native American populations. The 2019 National Survey on Drug Use and Health reports that Native Americans are slightly more likely to not know where to access substance use treatment than non-Hispanic whites, and were more likely to fear that getting treatment could jeopardize their job.
0: I'll go to Lynette, and uh, I wonder if you could describe what stigmas you face relating to having a substance use disorder.
10: Where do I begin? I know that in my addiction I heard junkie, common criminal, troublemaker, worthless, bad mom, once a junkie, always a junkie. I'm still currently facing some stigma. And as of today, today's my seven-year recovery day, but still facing some of the stigma. For instance, I have three felonies on my record that I'll have forever because when I was arrested, I gave a positive UA sample and was charged with internal possession, which were felonies back then. And because of the domestic violence, the stuff that kind of comes with addiction, I don't qualify for an expungement. And so I'm permanently branded as a criminal. So just those kind of stigmas are things that I faced. And I still see the stigma today with being a recovery coach, like in our rural area, harm reduction is something that is fairly new to Moab. And it's just been kind of starting to be learned about and known in the last couple of years and we face a lot of pushback and a lot of stigma about enabling addiction and so the stigma is still very thick today. I believed the things that people told me back then and it took a long time for positive self talk and that I do belong here and just knowing I'm enough.
0: You know work as a coach with folks. How do you help them to overcome stigma?
10: We As USARA, as a team, are really focused on positive language and building up people's self-esteem, but like in the community, also giving presentations a lot about positive language. So lots of role play, lots of setting goals, lots of positive affirmations, and also just educating the participant and the community as a whole about stigmatizing languages and how to overcome this and it's definitely challenging but once you see the participants the change in them from the stigma to knowing their worth and their value it it's the most beautiful thing that i've ever seen and so we just work really hard in those areas
1: heather real quick i want to pivot to you what could be done to lessen the burden lessen the barriers? for folks like Lynette to get stable housing and get the support they need.
11: Her story is one I've heard a hundred times about people struggling to find housing and not being able to find housing or qualify for projects if you're lucky enough to have Section 8 vouchers in your rural community. We have to stop thinking of housing as a reward for good behavior. When we have that shift in our mindset as a society, a lot of these barriers are gonna fall away. Housing is a human right. We have to start thinking about it that
2: way. Lynette, Heather, and Don made it a point to stress that substance use disorder is a disease. So many people fail to realize that and are quick to pass judgment on others. Some view harm reduction as enabling, not realizing it could actually save lives. It was also noted that words have power and it is important to speak positive self-talk over oneself And unfortunately, Lynette believed a lot of the negative things she heard about herself when she had substance use disorder. Since she is familiar with the harm it can do, as a recovery peer support specialist, she focuses on positive affirmations and building up her client's self-esteem, as well as giving presentations in the community about positive language to try to bring awareness. What can be gathered from this episode is that there is already a lack of resources in the rural areas But when stigma is thrown into the equation, it can hinder someone from receiving the support they need by creating shame, self-worthlessness, and fear of getting into trouble if they admit they have a problem. Hopefully, the more awareness that is brought to this issue, the more empathetic and compassionate people will become, and those struggling will feel more comfortable to seek treatment. As Heather said, housing is a human right. In Episode 5, We revisited the topic that was discussed in episode two. Indigenous and non-indigenous groups don't want to work together to solve social issues. Our guests, Mary Jo McMillan, Executive Director of USARA, which stands for Utah Support Advocates for Recovery Awareness, and Ashanti Moritz, Outreach Director for the Skull Valley Band of Ghost Shoots Warrior Spirit Recovery Center, helped debunk that myth. Stay tuned.
1: Ashanti, I want to start with yourself, and when you think about this myth that Indigenous and non-Indigenous groups cannot work together to solve social problems, what are some first thoughts that come to mind when you hear this myth?
3: When I hear this myth, I hear there is a big unknown of a cultural gap, so being Native myself and being raised, you know, I'd spend my summers with my family in Alaska, and then I would than the school years not on or near my reservation. So I hear this myth that goes back way until I'm five or six years old is that you can't reach Native Americans or that they don't have an understanding or don't have a desire to work with people on or off the tribe. So any type of government agency, any type of you know, that there's just like, oh, you can't talk to them. I hear that a lot. I see it in my profession today is that, well, how do you even communicate with the tribes or how do you get in front of the tribe? Or there's just this, this myth that we don't want to work with the communities and that we don't want to be connected and try and solve problems that come up or that were unreachable I want to build those bridges. I want to be that person that is approachable and connected and open and willing to listen and hear from both sides. Where are the gaps? What are we missing? Where are the cracks? And how do we problem solve those? For me, I see it completely different. The tribe that I work for is very involved in the community, is very involved in what we can do to better not only our county but the state and how we can connect with other tribes to do so, how we can connect with non-Natives in all the entities, the hospitals, the behavioral services around the area. How do we get in there? How do we make it so that everybody knows that we're in this and doing these things together?
1: Mary Jo, from your perspective, when you're working with an Indigenous community, what hesitancy, if any, come up for you or some questions be helpful to kind of break down the myth.
12: If I was working with an individual who was Native American, I would absolutely bring up, have they ever been introduced to material that was specific to a Native American? And of course, when I was looking as a counselor for what was available, I did get the opportunity to learn more about White Bison, the book that they wrote, Road to Wellbriety. And I found it actually so incredibly important when I was working with a Native American person. Though I did not know much about it myself, I could introduce them and give them a place that they could connect to. So I thought that that was critical, and that was really probably the primary way that I connected them.
1: This conversation is building off our first live episode, which we talked about non-Indigenous groups moving beyond the allyship and going to whole conspirator aspects. And for purposes of uh, this conversation where we were talking about co-conspirators is someone who understands the inequalities and inequities in the systems and also the impacts of historical trauma and how that affects communities today and the folks who want to work alongside with Indigenous communities. How do we shift from just being an ally and advocate, maybe placing the sign and in front of your house, what does that really mean when you put actionable things around there? Ashanti, I want to go to you, and I think this is a good opportunity to share from your perspective.
3: I really like this question because if I were to be able to share a piece of advice, it would be to take the time to kind of embrace the differences by going online, by looking at the surrounding area of where you are, and almost get familiar with the tribes in your area with what their names are, Our tribe serves Tooele County. Tooele is a go-shoot word. I don't know if a lot of people know that, that even live in Tooele, but to know that cultural part, that little bit of history of why the counties are named what they are, why the areas and the rivers and the parks are named what they are, that you would feel more connected than ever before to know that, you're in tribal land tribal areas and that there's more of a history to it and then another great point would be make room at that table for all different cultures and aspects to have a seat there and to know know deeply what their needs are to to invite that to be spoken about in a conversation, There's this expression, take the cotton or something and take it from your ears and put it in your mouth so that you are listening and you are openly listening with an open heart to what people need. To powwows, to drum music, to the flute, to what dream catchers mean, the different rocks and the stones and the colors and what that means, the medicine wheel or the wellness wheel and what that means. And the more that you take the time to educate or yourself or to even look into it and be curious about it, you'd be surprised at how much of the culture is already embedded into the community. And I think that if I were to give any advice, it would be to know that that there is a bunch of historical trauma, that there are proper names, and to know why mascots are offensive, and why we don't call our regalia costumes, and to not call a powwow a fair. These are the differences. The powwow is a spiritual place. The fair is where we gather to go have fun and to show different things that we've worked on, harvest, and to be proud of those things.
1: Mary Jo, from your perspective, what are some barriers between Indigenous and non-Indigenous groups when it comes specifically to substance misuse and, and housing situations?
12: We aren't meeting or talking enough together. And I think that it's a conversation that actually, I believe, is starting to resurface again. The last couple of years is being more conscious of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And when we're doing that, you know, and, and again, what, it, what you said is, you know, we can talk about it and raise awareness, but then what do we do as actionable items? And I think in the communities where we are talking about homelessness and mental health and substance use, is we need to have all leaders who are willing to represent people and what's going on in each of our cultural communities discuss it together because substance use is it's an illness that's affecting our communities. And in order to find the healing and the solution, we need to all be talking about it together. Again, it is a humanity issue. And so we may not have solutions alone as a non indigenous person, I don't know what other possible healing and solution-based actions I can take. And so if I meet with more people who I have more information, I can ask more questions, we can come up with more opportunities and options to problem solve. And I think it's going to take considerable effort to make sure we keep meeting. I think because if we stop sending the emails, stop making the calls, stop reaching out, We just go back to status quo, which is kind of this passivity. So we have to not be passive. So, again, when somebody asks, who else do we need at the table, I might have to bring up eight people, (laughs) because it's different cultures that we need at the table to solve this problem. We're not just addressing substance use. It might be harm reduction. It could be homelessness. And, again, it might be, well, who's the majority? And it's like, well, it's the individual that we need to start healing at a person at a time.
2: What appears to be the bottom line from episode five is that indigenous and non-indigenous people have to want to put in the effort to bridge the gap between them. Our guests Ashanti Moritz and Mary Jo McMillan are ready and willing to take steps towards building a more cohesive relationship with the respective groups. And it would be amazing if those relationships could motivate others to cast any apprehension they have about building connections aside. However, due to the number of years of unhealed trauma caused by the non-Indigenous people, it is going to take trust, patience, and understanding to mend fences. In our sixth and final episode for the season, we hear from Jay and Lauren Hymas, who are the owners of Clear Recovery of Cache Valley. They shared their riveting stories and debunked the myth you shouldn't give people who use drugs a second chance. They described why debunking that myth is crucial for healing and supporting those who are part of the substance use disorder communities. Let's take a listen.
1: I'm going to start with Jay. Could you introduce yourself and uh, just give some background of why
13: you're on and sharing your story? My name is Jay Hymus. I live up in Logan. It's the northeast corner of Utah. I'm the CEO and owner at Clear Recovery of Cache Valley. We are an outpatient substance abuse treatment center. We offer MAT and a lot of different modalities to help serve many persons in recovery. I'm sharing my story on Debunked because I am a person in recovery. It means a lot to me to be able to be here and Debunk this myth. My second chance actually did save my life. Thanks, Jay. Lauren, I was wondering if
1: you can uh, introduce yourself and share why you're here today.
13: My name is Lauren
14: Hymas. I live in High Park, Utah. And at Clear Recovery, I do peer support, yoga, and meditation. I often will work with women coming out of active addiction, trying to help them find recovery.
1: Jay, if I could stay with you, when you were seeking treatment, what were some of the services that started helping you to get on your feet?
13: I had a hard time getting insurance or any kind of resources to pay for rehab. It was really hard getting into a job and being able to be vulnerable. Still, a lot of those feelings of not good enough and that no one would ever accept me from my past.
1: Could you just share how access to resources or maybe not the access to resources that could discourage some folks on getting that helping hand?
14: Not having resources and not having the money or the insurance. It's really hard for someone in active addiction to reach out and know where to look so it can keep them stuck in their addiction for a long time. I had a good year and a half where I knew I needed help but I just didn't know of any resources and I was fearful to reach out and try to find resources because of the judgment and the stigma and afraid while I still had my kids, I would be judged and I would lose them for seeking help. So I feel like that ties in with the lack of resources too, is just that fear of losing your children, your family, what you do have.
0: Jay, can you describe what kinds of stigmas you faced related to having a substance use disorder, especially in a rural area?
13: A couple times that really stand out to me, you know, I was staying in a tent up the canyon, kind of defeated. I had some hikers walking by and asked me if I was ever going to move from that camping spot. I immediately packed all my stuff up as much as I could carry, and I, I was gone. They didn't know that I was living there. You know, I don't blame them. Maybe they wanted to camp there, but it also it really ingrained that sense of disconnection in me. Like I didn't belong. I wasn't worthy of even camping somewhere.
0: Uh, Lauren, were there ever times when someone like a neighbor, a pharmacist or doctor or anyone else discriminated against you because of your substance use disorder?
14: And I remember one of the last times I went in, they had me on an IV and I remember hearing the nurses they in the hall talking, well, she's just a drug addict. And they came in when it was time after I got all the fluids in me with my discharge papers and the nurse, he just ripped the IV out of my arm. My whole arm was bruised. It was painful. I couldn't believe that they did that. But I felt like that treatment was because, like, oh, she's just a drug addict, or she deserves it, or, you know, it's her own problem. She's creating this. It was like they didn't believe me that I was sick. They didn't believe something was going on inside of me that was making me feel sick. I'm just another drug addict
13: in there for whatever reason.
0: So I want to turn back to you, Jay. Tell me some of your experiences finding housing in the past.
13: A lot of the barriers and things to getting housing is you go apply for these houses and then you don't get a call, especially if you've got an eviction or your credit score isn't 750. We really desperately needed something. And we came across to a place, called the guy, and his name's Mark. And as soon as I knew it was him, I told Lauren, I was like, there's no way he's going to rent to us. Having rented from him before and being evicted by him, and she's like, well, why don't we just try? And I'm like, no. And she convinced me into just giving it a try. He applied for the place, but I was able to, to meet with him. I apologized, and I said, look, here it is. I'm a drug addict. I know I burned you in the past, but I'm going to do my best to do right by you. I really need this opportunity. And that man called me two days later and brought me to my knees and gave me a second chance.
0: So, Lauren, Jay told that amazing story about this landlord that gave you guys a second chance. What would you say generally to landlords about running homes to people in recovery?
14: Give them a second chance. It's empowering. It feels good when someone gives you that chance and you feel like you're not deserving or worthy of it. So just be compassionate towards someone and their struggles and their lived experience because that's not who defines someone. Their mistakes don't define us.
2: What an amazing story Jay shared about Mark the gentleman who gave him and Lauren a second chance by renting to them even after Jay was evicted from a previous property owned by him. Imagine how much of a burden would be lifted off of individuals who struggle with substance use disorder if more people were as compassionate as Mark. This season covered a number of myths that unfortunately people still believe. Bringing awareness is one of the ways to try to combat those beliefs. It's been a very informative season. And we hope that you walked away from each episode with knowledge you didn't have prior to tuning in. We appreciate the listenership and all of the support. The Debunk podcast was created by the Utah State University Office of Health Equity and Community Engagement, and Tribal and Rural Opioid Initiative, which are housed within the USU, Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services, Department of Kinesiology, and Health Science and USU Extension. The program is made possible by SAMHSA, Utah Public Radio, and Community Partners.